you bow your heads with me for prayer? Father, my prayer is that the Spirit of the living God would move upon us. I pray, Father, that on your word you would anoint each word. I pray, Father, that every heart, every life that is in this room today would be open to hear what you have to say. My prayer, Father, is that we would be a church that makes a difference in the world. And the only way that we can make a difference in the world is if we, as individuals and as a congregation, are transformed by the living Spirit of Christ. It's my prayer for today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, for the past uh, six weeks, and today we're concluding our series on the top ten reasons why not to follow Jesus. During that, uh, these weeks, we've looked at a lot of different objections to the faith, and I trust that God has uh, uh, moved in your life. Uh, some of you, I know, love kind of the intellectual pursuit of faith, and I, I love that too, and we've done some of that, but more than anything else, what I've wanted to move you toward in all of this is a deep understanding and a deep sense of the power of the living Christ within you. So we've established the fact that uh, it's not easy being a follower of Christ. In fact, it's very difficult being a follower of Christ. But I would suggest uh, this morning that it's also not easy being a non-believer. It's not easy being an atheist. Let me give you an example. There was an avowed atheist who found himself in a very precarious situation. He was out in the forest all by himself, and he was set upon by a very large grizzly bear. And as the bear chased him, finally the man stumbled and he fell, and the bear was standing over him with his claws bared, his teeth snarling and bared, and he's about ready just to take care of this guy, when all of a sudden the atheist did something no one would expect. He said, God help me. All of a sudden, everything froze. The bear just froze like this. Everything stopped around him. And there was a voice from heaven that said, I thought you didn't believe in me. Well, the atheist said, I'm in a pretty tough situation here, so what does it hurt to try? God said, that's a good point. And then God said, what should we do now? The man said, well, I'm not really sure, but uh, I know it wouldn't be fair to make me a Christian because I've kind of been an avowed atheist all my life, but why don't you make the bear a Christian? God said, okay. So then everything comes back to motion. The bear comes alive, everything starts moving, and then the bear brings his two great paws together and folds them and says, Lord, for about what we are about to receive, we give you thanksgiving. So, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's tough being a Christian, but it's not easy being a non-believer either. 
let's face it, our world uh, is a challenge to live in, especially when we are one who follows Christ. Now, we've looked at uh, some of the, I think, what are the greatest objections to Christianity over these weeks. I want to review them for you briefly. By the way, if you missed any of these uh, messages and you want to have kind of a full picture of the uh, ten objections that people have to Christianity, you can go online and listen to any of these sermons. Um, uh, In fact, you can go online and listen to a sermon from 2005 if you want, you know, so. But uh, all of those are online and you can pick those up on your uh, podcast. So here's what we've been looking at for these uh, last six weeks. The first thing, the way we introduced the whole series was the fact that uh, Christianity is just really hard. And it's hard because of some of the things that Jesus said himself. Uh, Jesus set himself up to be kind of the bad guy in a lot of ways. And in Luke 9, we looked at uh, three men who wanted to be followers of Christ. And each one of them, the first one came up and said, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. And you can read all of this in Luke chapter 9. I want to follow you. I want to be part of your, your team. I, 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 sign me up. And, and Jesus said, oh, okay, but you need to remember something. If you're on my side, if you're on my team, there's a good chance you're going to be homeless. Okay, well, that's not, you know, that, that's not Tony Robbins-esque, you know. <laughs> that doesn't build up, you know, a lot of confidence, right? But that's what he said. And then another man said, well, Lord, I want to follow you. And I, I want to be there, and I'm, I'm going to be on your team, and we're going to be tight. And Jesus, let's do this together. But first, my father just died, and so I just want to go and bury him first. And Jesus said, no. No. And, and everybody just stopped and looked and said, what? what? I mean, that seems like such a normal thing. Go and bury your father. Jesus said, no, nothing comes before following me. Nothing. And then make things even worse. A, a third man said to Jesus, I want to be a follower of, of you. But first let me go home, uh, kiss my wife on the head, say goodbye to my mom and dad. And, and, I'll, and Jesus said, no. <laughs> you, you don't turn around. You don't go back to anything. You, you follow me. You do everything. That is a problem for most people. That's a problem for many Christians. Those verses. So we talked about how that Christianity is really hard. And then we, we talked about how exclusive Christianity is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the door to the sheep gate. I'm not a door. I'm not a way. I'm the door. I'm the way. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. I am the one. Very exclusive. Excluding all other religions. Excluding all other religious teachers. Jesus said, this is really exclusive. That's a problem for a lot of people in our world. And then Christianity is just too judgmental. Well, well, you know what? That's probably true. Uh, one thing the church has done over the years has, has basically, you know, shot their own wounded and just kind of pushed them off to the side. And, of course, we don't want to do that. Most people that love God don't want to do that. But that's been the history of the church. But to that objection, Jesus says, listen, it's not about judgmentalism. What, what, judgmentalism is about religion and having to do the list. And when you don't do the list, you get your hands slapped or God points his finger and shames you or steps on you because you're having too much fun. That's judgmentalism. Jesus said, it's not about religion. It's about a personal relationship with me that connects you to the heart of God. So it's not about judgmentalism, it's about relationship with me. Well, another objection was, what about those who are sincere? Well, God bless them. You know, everybody's sincere. If you weren't sincere, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. But 
Hitler was sincere. Didn't save him. Jeffrey Dahmer was sincere. Pol Pot was sincere. People doing wicked things are sincere all the time. Sincerity doesn't make you right. It's sincerity about the right thing. And that's what we talked about several weeks ago. Well, how about this? All religions are the same. That's one of the great objections. Well, we looked at that very closely several weeks ago. And we looked at the six major religions. And we investigated each one of them. And I told you to do some homework and to check it out. If someone says all religions are the same, my immediate response is, you haven't done your homework. You haven't really read anything about these religions. Because the six major religions are not the same. They're all fundamentally opposite to each other. Because every other religion is about man trying to find a way to make God like you. Christianity is God saying, I already like you, now I'm going to die for your sins on the cross. Religion is reaching up to God. Christianity is God reaching down to man. There's nothing similar about world religions. They're all completely different. So do your homework on that one. And then the next question naturally would be, if Christianity is supposed to be the way, who says that Jesus in the Bible... Get the nod. Why not Islam? Why not Mormonism? Why not Buddhism? Why not one of the other religions? And again, we talked about how, how clear both history and archaeology are around this subject. All other world religions have all of these, these kind of ethereal, um, weird, we don't know where it came from ideas, things like Mormonism and Islam. They're just kind of different. But Christianity is rooted in history and archaeology. Just do your homework. Well, what about those who have never heard? How can a God of love send someone who's never heard of Jesus Christ to hell? Very logical, very logical objection. We looked at Romans chapter 1, where God said God's, Paul said God's invisible qualities His eternal power and divine nature are evident to every man so that no man is without excuse. Somehow, someway, through creation, through God's enormous love for this world, God, if someone is seeking God, God promises, I'll make sure that that one heart that is seeking me, I'll connect with them. I'll figure out a way. What about suffering? We looked at that on September 11th, remember? The rogue winds that come into our lives, how do we explain those? One of the greatest objections is how can a a God of love and compassion allow such tragic, terrible, awful things to happen in our world? And we looked at how that the world is a broken world and people are broken in it. And therefore, there's a lot of broken things that take place that have really nothing to do with God. But God promises, I will always be with you in the midst of your suffering and your sorrow. And then we looked at the resurrection history or hoax a couple weeks ago. Last week, we looked at the church. And one of the greatest objections to people that are outside of Christianity is um, you and me, the church, our history, the terrible things we have done in the name of Christ. Even the way that we are kind of hypocrites today. We, we all want to love God and serve God, but we kind of do stuff, stuff that doesn't indicate that. And we have all of this angst and all of this weirdness. But if you truly want to be a part of the body of Christ, that leprous body that Christ drags behind him. If you truly want to be a part of, of Christ's church, here's what you can expect if you do. You can expect pain, risk, and loss. And so, to me, after these weeks I've been preaching on this stuff, it amazes me that you're still coming back. (laughs) 
But if you want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to know what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, it's hard and it's difficult. And God says this is the hardest life in the world and it's also the most wonderful life in the world. And so what I've been priming you to say to the Lord every week is this. Have you, have you counted the cost? I mean, really? We don't want to play church. The Bible's very clear about undivided hearts. God wants an undivided heart. Have you counted the cost, really? Do you really understand what it takes to be a follower of Christ? It's not easy. And it doesn't fit nicely into our society. And it doesn't fit nicely into our country. And all of that. It just doesn't fit that nicely. It's difficult. Are you willing, along with Isaiah 700 years ago or 2,700 years ago, to say, Lord, here am I, send me? The Bible says if you're a follower of Christ, there's no divided heart, no shared affection. One of the songs that we sing on Sundays is, He is jealous for me. That's very real. God doesn't want part of you. He doesn't want half of you. He doesn't want 90% of you. He wants all of you. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, if that's you this morning, like many of us did last Sunday, if that's your heart today, if you're saying, okay, sign me up, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. I, I know it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be soft and fluffy and good all the time, but I'm, I'm in, sign me up. I had a meeting this last week with one of the young women in our church who basically said, I, I, I'm responding to the gospel. I, I'm a young mom. I've got a husband that loves me. I have three children. What, what, do you, what does God want me to do? I'm ready. I'm signing me up. That was so miraculous to hear the heart of a young woman saying, what, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the kind of church hope is and the kind of church that hope wants to be. So this morning, if you would say with me, okay, I'm, I'm on board, I'm, I sign me up, I'm all in. Like the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus, I, I'm, I'm ready to go. Here's what you can expect He will do for you if you say, Lord, I'm all in. And again, there are things that you normally wouldn't expect. The first thing God wants to do to you, and we're going to do, look at three things today. He wants to turn an ordinary man or woman into an extraordinary man or woman. Another thing he wants to do is he wants to turn a consumer into a contributor. And the final thing he wants to do, and we'll look at each of these, is he wants to turn the living into dead. Now that sounds kind of weird. I know we'll get to that in a few minutes. Here we go. The ordinary, in the day of Jesus, the ordinary were transformed into the extraordinary. Look at Acts 4.13. Now, the context of Acts 4.13, this is shortly after Pentecost, shortly after this powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where Peter preached and 3,000 people were saved. It was in a, in a, in a, in a, an amazing time. And, and, and here's what Acts 4.13 says shortly after this. Talking about Peter and John. They're preaching, doing miracles. They've been arrested. They're, they're jailed. And, and here's what Acts 4.13 says. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished 
And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, it's interesting that non-believers look at these men and their, the way they're behaving, the way they're living out their lives, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There was some connector there for them. There's no natural or earthly reason for these men to uh, be preaching powerfully and having these astonishing things take place. But, but these are just common, ordinary men. Now, these were the same men that about a week before this text, end of Matthew, end of any of the Gospels, right? About a week before this, the disciples were huddled in an upper room, terrified, because Jesus had been crucified and all of their dreams and their, their, their promises and all of that were dead. And these are people huddling for fear that the Romans would actually capture them and crucify them too. And then everything changed when Jesus appeared. And then when Jesus left, 40 days later, when Jesus left, what happened? He said, I promise I will leave you the Comforter. I will leave you the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God is with these men. Their lives have been completely transformed But these were called ordinary, unschooled men. I did some teaching around this about three years ago. I want to expand that teaching for a moment. Ordinary, unschooled, in the Greek, the word, anybody remember kind of what that word might be? It's kind of funny. Idiotes. Thank you, Mrs. Cross. You pay attention. Idiotes. Uh, These common, ordinary, unschooled men, that description, that adjective, is idiotes. Now, does that mean they were idiots? No, it doesn't. But it comes from that same word that there's no rational understanding of how they can do this miraculous thing. Now, we are a church of idiotases. Now, I want you to turn to someone and say to them, don't say you're an idiotase. Say, I'm an idiotase. Okay, do that. Mike already knows it. You don't have to tell him. <laughs> Okay, did that make you feel excited and kind of pumped up and, you know, makes you feel good about yourself? See, the reason I say that is because, truly, we are a church. We we have some wonderful people, but we are a church of common, ordinary people. We're a church because almost every one of us that came to this church came to this church broken, fully in recognition of our sinfulness. Uh, Many of us addicted, just way out in left field and and we came to this church and we experienced Christ and he transformed us and let's be honest we're just common ordinary men and women idiotes God took ordinary people and he uses them and when you were looking around each other a moment ago I hope that you saw not only those common ordinary people but you saw extraordinary people people that um Go to the Navajo Nation and bear witness to Christ's love to those wonderful people. People who are doing our very best in a small way to make a difference in human trafficking. And if we can get one teenage girl off the street of Phoenix and get her into a home and and have her feel loved and accept Christ and have her life transformed, it's worth it. Ordinary people are doing this. We have... Ordinary people that are over here right now teaching your children about Jesus. And many of those children that are being taught about Jesus will grow up and they will make a difference. They will be world changers. 
We have teachers over here, uh, Pastor Brian and Craig Smith, that are, that are teaching our teenagers. And those teenagers are so hungry. Ever since camp, they've been hungry. And they're coming and they're listening and they're growing and they're, they're understanding. And, and these are common, ordinary people that are doing these things. And we have those kind of people that are, that are serving in the nursery and, and, and working in the tea room where, where people are making, uh, they're making money so that they can do missions. And we have people that are singing up here on the worship team and doing sound. And all of these people are common, ordinary people, all for the purpose of one thing. What can we do? To reach one more person for Christ. What can we do? God, we're, we're, we're not very gifted. We're not very talented. But what can we do to reach one more for Christ? That's what God did in Acts chapter 4. You notice he did not recruit. I mean, you can, it's easy to see who he did recruit. Common people, fishermen. Uh, yeah, one tax collector, one doctor, but most of them in common, ordinary people. Let me tell you that these are the kind of people he recruited, fishermen and broken people and outcast people and tax collectors and, and prostitutes and idiotases, all. But with those people, Philippians 4.13, for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yesterday at our men's, at our men's uh, breakfast, we had a man share. Um, he's, a, he's a lay preacher very powerful preacher, but recently he's had a real, uh, he's had a, a broken, broken life and he's fallen and he's fallen hard. And he shared with us yesterday what that looked like. And this is a person who is truly a common, ordinary person that with, without, without Christ, he is nothing. But with Christ, he can do all things. Well, let me tell you who, who he didn't recruit. He didn't recruit any Pharisees. Scribes or Sadducees or Sanhedrin, religious leaders. Not, not a single person from the safe, religious, traditional church. Religious people did not know the power of God. In fact, one of the things that, that we do know is that the power of God on people like Peter and John in the first century... It did extraordinary things, but these were not people that were religious. These were not people that were educated. These were not people that were, were strong in their faith and their religion. These were weak, ordinary people. Today, who does a church recruit? I think most churches recruit people with money, beautiful people, people that are neat and tidy. You know, people ask me sometimes, oh, how is it that we... We, we kind of have this, uh, this kind of vibe in our church that everybody's welcome, you know, even sinners and broken people. The reason we kind of have that vibe in our church is because it's true. Because I don't care. We, we've had people of all sins and persuasions, you know, because we represent all sins here. And they've come to our church and, uh, and some of them have felt very welcome and very loved. That's the way Jesus did church. People are recruited sometimes because they're clean and neat and polished. We don't expect people to come here fixed. We expect them to come here because they're broken, just like us. We went after imperfect people. We made that decision 10 years ago. I, I have something here that I want to show you. And uh, this is a poster that I keep in my office. And if you've ever been in my office, it's the first thing you notice. 
And it's a, a reminder of who is welcome in our church and who is welcome in my office. And it says, do you seriously think God can't use you? And then it has a list. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair. Oh, no, not that. And was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair and was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Don't expect that. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus was dead. Those are the people that um, Jesus used. If you ever think that you can't be a servant of Christ, that you can't be a Christian, and a Christian, the word Christian means Christ's one. It doesn't mean you're religious or you go to church. It doesn't mean you belong to a certain church. It means you're Christ's one. You belong to Him, and He belongs to you. If you're a Christian, God could take those kind of people, and people like we see out here, these youth over here, these children over here, God will take these people and will turn ordinary people into extraordinary children of God. See, God recognized, He sees your heart. The New Testament church was not for the convinced. It was for doubters, and that's what our church is about. The New Testament church was not for those who were all together, but those who were sinners. Not for the well, but the sick. Idiotes, all. God never intended the church of Jesus Christ to be a safe, unobtrusive, inoffensive place. He never intended the church to be sterile. In fact, the church is only to be one thing, and that's plan A, to reach the world for Jesus. It's not to make you feel comfortable. It's not to provide me a salary. It's not to make you feel good on Sunday mornings. God's plan A is always the same thing. To reach the world for Christ. And I want to be a plan A church. God doesn't have a plan B. God doesn't say, well, you know, if the church fails, then we're going to go over here. No, no. We are it. Acts 19.11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Paul? What a loser that guy was. We forgot that we are called to transform our world by the power of Jesus, to reach the lost. We are not called to be comfortable, but transformational. And who does he use to do that? Common, uneducated, ordinary people. In the late 1940s, a United States government, the United States government commissioned William Francis Gibbs to design and construct an $80 million troop carrier for the Navy. Now, the idea was that this troop carrier was fast and sleek, carried 15,000 troops, and it was to be used at the time. Uh, this is late 40s. This is when we weren't too sure about the Russians, because after World War II, the Russians rushed into Germany and started doing worse things than the Germans did, and it was just a mess. And so we knew that the Russia was on our radar screen, and Korea was in trouble, and so we knew that we were going to probably have some fights in the world, right? And in order to get our guys there, we had to have this new transport ship. By 1952, the construction of the SS United States was complete. 
It had a top speed of 44 knots, 51 miles an hour. It could go 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. It could outrun any ship on the ocean and travel anywhere in the world nonstop in less than 10 days. The SS United States was the fastest, most reliable troop carrier in the world. The only catch was it never carried any troops. I was on standby one time in 1962 with Cuban Missile Crisis, but nothing came of that, at least that they had to send troops to. Instead, this SS United States was refitted as a luxury liner. It carried presidents and heads of state and celebrities. It was refitted from carrying 15,000 troops to being able to minister to 2,000 passengers. 15,000, 2,000. 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open decks and pools and recreation, 19 elevators, fully luxurious for the purpose of the indulgence of wealthy patrons who desired to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. That's kind of a cool story, but here's my point. The Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a troop carrier, not a luxurious cruise. Now, I love our church. I mean, you've got to remember when we built this building back in 2002, um, we, we had less than 100 people and we didn't have much money. And the conference said, we'll loan you the money, but this is kind of a big deal for you. So our, our church is um, nice. I love it. It's nice. We have, we, every week we're comfortable. We have air conditioning. all of, But you know what? We're not, very, um, we're not very classy compared to if you go to Cornerstone or some of the other churches. We can't compete with that. But, but please hear this. This church was designed to be a troop carrier. Designed that every week these chairs are moved out of here. And we have teenagers, youth, um, stroller strides, uh, Boy Scouts. All these things happen in this room. This is a troop carrier. This isn't a luxury liner. This church is designed to um, prepare you for the battle. This church is not designed for your comfort. This church is designed to get you ready to go to the Navajo Nation and go to Streetlight and go to Japan and go to France like Alex and Amy Junk and, and go to your neighbor's house and go to downtown Chandler and carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a troop carrier. This is not a luxury liner. That's the church in our world today. You look around and, and you see these churches, like I said earlier, uh, two out of three churches in Europe are sitting empty, but they're opulent. And they're beautiful and they're luxurious and they have stained glass and they have stone and they're the best of you could possibly buy, but they're empty. The church is a troop carrier. It's not a luxury cruiser. So what happened with Peter? Peter and John. These guys that were nervously, anxiously waiting in the upper room. Then about three or four weeks later, we see Peter out there thundering the gospel of Jesus and 3,000 people come to Christ. I'll tell you why. Because God took an ordinary person and made something extraordinary out of him by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same thing could be happened to you. God wants to transform us and our church from being ordinary to extraordinary. 
But he also wants to transform us from being consumers to being contributors. Listen to Acts 2.42. You know this passage. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as he had need. Talk about a troop carrier. (laughs) No opulence there. No luxury there. If you need a horse or a cow, somebody will give it to you. The early church was turned from, they were turned from being consumers into contributors. Well, how about the church of Jesus Christ today? Now, some of what I'm saying, I've, I've been a part of. I, I know we want to have an attractive church and comfortable chairs and air conditioning and a good sound system because it's important that when new people come here, they want to come back. So I, I understand that. But there's too many people in our world today, too many Christians that are consumers. What does the church have to offer me? What's the best church for my kids? And this kind of consumerism where you're looking for the flashiest and the best and the nicest and the hippest and the coolest. and God doesn't want us to be consumers. He wants us to be contributors. I had a couple of weeks ago, one of the new families in our church uh, said, we, we love this church because we feel like here we can serve. This wasn't somebody that came and said, okay, you guys have it all together, because we don't. <laughs> no, no, we, we know there's, there's holes in our ministry. We know there's flaws, and, and there's, because you know, we're all broken people. But, but we believe that God wants us to serve here. Now, that's a contributor. That's a contributor. I also had somebody else ask me um, last week. They said, now, where does the church get its money? And I thought, oh, that's a good question. Uh, the church gets its money from you, I said. <laughs> me? <laughs> what do you mean, me? I said, yeah, I mean, we only have one source of income. You <laughs> and me. Uh, we don't, the covenant doesn't give us money. In fact, we give the covenant money. Uh, missions don't give us money. We give missions money. So, uh, we only have one source. And, and, and people that come and say, well, what can I get? Instead of saying, God, how can I invest my money, my time, my talents, my gifts? How can I invest in the ministry of a church that cares about being a troop carrier? I don't want to be a consumer. I want to be a contributor. I want to find not a church that meets my needs, but... I want to find a church that needs my gifts. We exist for the world. And I pray, I pray with all my heart that you, as the family of God, that we will not be a church of consumers, but we will be a church of contributors. Sometimes, I know in our society, it's really hard to do that because, well, we've been in a down economy Back in 2006, 2007, things started taking a dive and we thought, well, we'll pull out of this shortly. <laughs> Here is 2011. We're still sucking air. <laughs> and we are. I mean, how many of us have our, our mortgages upside down and all kinds of things? And it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. But you know what? One of the great things about Sherry and I have decided that we wanted to put Christ number one in our life. And many times the first thing that that connotes is is my wallet. 
very first thing. Because the very thing that I hold on to the tightest usually is money. And I want to be a person that is generous. I don't want to be a person that says, what can I get? I want to be a person that says, what can I give? God wants us. Time, talent, money. God wants us to be contributors and not consumers. And that leads us to the last thing that God calls us to be as the church of Jesus Christ. He said, I want to turn the living into the dead. (laughs) Galatians 2.20 For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One of the verses that we've used throughout this entire series of messages is this. Jesus bids you come and die. You know how we want uh, Jesus to say, come over here, I've got some goodies for you. (laughs) You know, I'm going to give you heaven, give you forgiveness. Those are all good. You know, we're always looking for the goodie bag. But the thing we forget is Jesus says, come on over here. I bid you come and die. What does that mean, Jesus? Jesus said, I'll tell you what it means. Philippians 3. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And in order to know the power of his resurrection, I've got to know the power of his death. I've got to know what it means to die to myself. Do you think Jesus died to himself when he took your sins as his own? I need to die to myself, die to my own purposes. That's why Jesus in the garden said, "If Lord, if this cup can be passed from me, please. I don't want to do this, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. To be dead means that we are dead to our sins. Dead to control of our lives. Dead to, to, to being in charge. Dead to one, trying to be a, a, a person or a church of opulence instead of one who is streamlined and sleek and ready to go into battle. The greatest thing that's happened to me so far in 2011, I still have a long ways to go, but the greatest thing that's happened to me this year is that I've died a little bit more. Died a little bit more to worry, to materialism, to what people think about me. I live for an audience of one. And the more I die, the more Christ lives in me. So here's the question. Are you dead yet? Are you dead yet? Dead to sin, self, selfishness, consumerism, the ordinary? Are you dead yet? Would you bow your heads with me, please?